During this 10-day Vipassana meditation retreat, we also spend some time to practice the four protective meditations. And earlier in this retreat, I have explained against what these four protective meditations can protect us. Tonight, in this Dhamma talk, I will speak more generally about how the practice of the Dhamma can protect us. So the title of this talk is The Protective Power of the Dhamma. And in the scriptures we have the following sentence. The power of the Dhamma protects the follower of the Dhamma. So, there are some questions. What is meant by the power of the Dhamma that can act as a protection? Or the question, how is the, how is the follower of the Dhamma protected? From what or from whom is he or she protected? Or the question, when or under what circumstances does the Dhamma have the power to protect? So in this talk we will have a look at these different questions and I will talk about some of the areas where the protective power of the Dhamma becomes obvious and how it actually works on an experiential, personal level. One of the suttas, one of the discourses of the Buddha, addresses this topic, this topic directly. And in that sutta, the Buddha uses the following analogy. There was once a pair of jugglers who performed their acrobatic feats on a bamboo pole. One day the master said to his apprentice, Now get on my shoulders and climb up the bamboo pole. When the apprentice had done so, the master said, Now protect me well and I will protect you. By protecting and guarding each other in this way, we will display our skills, collect our fee, and get down safely from the bamboo pole. But the apprentice said, This is not the way to do it, Master. 
you protect yourself and I will protect myself. Thus, each self-guarded and self-protected, we will display our skills, collect our fee and get down safely from the bamboo pole. And so then, in his discourse, the Buddha commented that what the apprentice said was the right way. And the Buddha continued to say that to protect oneself means to practice the four foundations of mindfulness, which means to practice vipassana meditation. And to protect others also refers to the practice of the four foundations of mindfulness. And then after that, the Buddha said, protecting oneself, one protects others. Protecting others, one protects oneself. So how is it that by protecting oneself, at the same time, one protects others? It's through the cultivation and development of the four foundations of mindfulness that the protection comes about. And the practice of the four foundations of mindfulness is basically what we are doing here, practicing vipassana meditation, being aware of whatever arises in this body-mind process. And then, how is it that by protecting others, at the same time, one protects oneself? And this is through patience, harmlessness, loving-kindness, and sympathy that the protection comes about. So first, Let's go to the protection of oneself that comes about by practicing the four foundations of mindfulness, that comes about through the practice of vipassana meditation. So, in other words, we can say this is the protection gained from the practice of vipassana meditation. As I have said, and as you have come to understand yourself, mindfulness or sati is very important in the practice of vipassana meditation. It's a basic requisite to clearly be aware of objects, to clearly see and understand them. And so mindfulness, sati, as a mental factor, is contained in several groups of dhammas. For example, sati, mindfulness, is one of the five mental factors. It is also one of the five mental powers. And then sati is also one of the seven factors of awakening. And sati is one of the factors of the Noble Eightfold Path. 
And so the way mindfulness, sati, is manifested, it's described as protection or as guardianship. Sati, mindfulness, protects or guards the mind from unwholesome mental states. It protects or guards the mind from the defilements. So let's take an example of seeing an object. And let's say it's a nice and lovely object that we see. It can be a lovely scenery uh, of mountains, or it can be a lovely scenery on the shore of the ocean, or what we see can be a handsome man or a beautiful woman. And so when the mind is not guarded by mindfulness, this nice visible object will immediately be grasped by the mind. So within no time, the mind becomes attached to this visible object and it doesn't want to get, lo- to get let go of it. But then, if the object somehow disappears, is not there anymore, then one tries to get the object again by getting involved in all sorts of activity. And so in this way, the mind gets caught up in negative or unwholesome states of mind. So in this way, we become the slaves of our desire, attachment, or craving. On the other hand, when the mind is guarded by mindfulness, then the defilements have no chance to creep into the mind. Or if they still can creep in, then at least they are not given free reign to do what they want. In our example of seeing a nice and attractive object, so the careful and attentive observation of that object in the first place can prevent the arising of defilement. A strong mindfulness of that visible object leads to the recognition this is just a nice and lovely object producing a pleasant feeling. But with that strong mindfulness, the mind will not go any further, and so that strong mindfulness will prevent the arising of unwholesome mental states, such as craving, wanting, desire, attachment. However, sometimes the mindfulness is not so strong, and it cannot prevent the mind from the arising of the defilement. But nevertheless, the mind, mindfulness is strong enough to quickly arise the arising of the defilement, to quickly recognize 
the arising, let's say, of desire, of wanting, or attachment. And so then, being able to be aware of that defilement, the desire, then that defilement won't grow stronger. And so through the constant, uninterrupted awareness, the defilement loses its power and naturally it weakens and finally it disappears. So in this way, mindfulness serves as a protection against unwholesome mental states, against the defilements. It either prevents the defilement from arising in the first place, or it catches the defilement early enough, enough so that it will not spread like a bushfire. give an example. Some years ago I was teaching a retreat at the meditation center in Beatenberg in Switzerland. The center has a gorgeous view on snow-capped mountains. And one meditator in an interview told me that the day before strong anger was arising. She said she was mindful of it, she observed the anger, and then she noticed how it dissipated and how finally the anger had completely gone, completely disappeared. And she said, observing the anger in this way, it felt like the mindfulness was eating the anger. It was like the anger was served on a plate and so then no, the anger was served on a plate and so then mindfulness um, was eating it with gusto and after that the plate was clean and empty. So the practice of mindfulness or Vipassana meditation, more generally said, mental development, this is the highest and most reliable form of protection. Now let's go to the statement protecting others, at the same time one protects oneself. So how can we protect others? Of course also through the practice of being mindful. But besides that, it's through the practice of patience, of harmlessness, of loving-kindness and sympathy. So it's quite obvious that with these qualities of patience, harmlessness, loving-kindness and sympathy, we protect others from harm and misery. 
for example, with patience and forbearance, we can avoid conflicts and quarrels. Abiding by harmlessness, we do not inflict injuries or suffering on others. When our actions of body and speech are suffused with loving-kindness, then we show our sincere commitment to generate harmony and understanding among people, among living beings. And in dealing with other people, we show our sympathy by trying to understand their point of view. So in this way, we can protect others by not harming them. Our considerate and kind actions, they are like an umbrella that gives protection to everybody around us. And then at the same time, we protect ourselves by not committing unvirtuous actions. And so, by doing so, we are not only free from the immediate results of our wrong actions, but then we are also free from later results of these unwholesome actions, of this unwholesome karma. So in order to effectively protect oneself and others, we need some basic understanding of what is considered to be good or helpful, beneficial and wholesome. So at the end of this retreat, I will go more into this topic, talk about it. Apart from mindfulness, there are other aspects mentioned in the Buddhist teachings that can give us protection. Before I go into some other aspects, let's have a, let's have a look at the word protection. As we use the word protection, it implies usually protection from something. In the most general sense, it means protection from harm or danger or injury or fear. It's protection from something we dislike, protection from something unwanted, or protection from something frightening. Now, a very basic aspect of protection is connected to the way we behave in the world. And so this concerns our actions of body and speech. Because with our physical and verbal actions, we affect ourselves and the world around us in deep and profound ways. 
So with our actions of body and speech, we either contribute to harmony and understanding, or we inflict uh, injury, we cause harm, misery, suffering. We only need uh, to read the news and see the devastating effects that people's actions have on themselves and on others. To be a decent human being involves to restrain one's actions of body and speech. So to refrain our bodily and verbal actions so that, so that we do not inflict suffering um, on others and ourselves. But because it is not so clear to everybody on this planet what constitutes good, beneficial and wholesome actions of body and speech, certain guidelines have been set up in many religions, in cultures all around the world. And the Buddha proposed the five precepts, the five ethical guidelines, as a minimum standard to live a decent and compassionate life. You know, these are the five precepts that we chanted at the beginning of this retreat. So by living along these ethical guidelines, by keeping these five precepts, first of all, we protect ourselves. At the most elementary level, the observance of these five precepts protects us from coming into trouble with the law. Because killing, stealing, adultery, bearing false testimony, and irresponsible behavior caused by drunkenness or drugs, these are offenses punishable by the law. On top of this, following these five precepts helps establish a good reputation among our fellow human beings, among our family, our friends, our relatives, colleagues at work. But then, at an inward level, keeping the precepts, this leads to a clear conscience. Because even if nobody knows of our misdeed, of our unwholesome or harmful action, we won't have a clear conscience. It will haunt us. And so we will be haunted by guilt, by regrets, regret or uneasiness, remorse. But the absence of guilt or remorse leads to another benefit, which in Buddhism is not to underestimate 
It is said that with a clear conscience, we are able to die peacefully, without fear and confusion. Which is said uh, quite essential, quite important, that we can die with a clear conscience, peacefully. So by keeping the precepts, we are protected from the coarsest level of the defilements. The defilements are divided into three levels, and the coarsest level is called the transgressive defilements. This means when we act out a defilement in an act of body or speech by an unwholesome action. Like, if the defilement of anger is present in the mind, so then acting it out by hitting somebody or by shouting, abusing somebody. So then this bodily act or this verbal act, this is called a transgressive defilement. And as we know, the ultimate goal of the Buddha's teaching is the complete abandoning or overcoming of all the defilements. And not only the defilements on the coarsest level, these transgressive defilements, but also the so-called obsessive defilements. These are the defilements that manifest in the mind, you know, the anger, the jealousy, the craving, the wanting, and so on. So overcoming also these obsessive defilements. And then the most subtle level of the defilements are the so-called latent defilements. It's just the latency of the defilements in, in the mind. It's like they are dormant, they are sleeping, and with a certain object, then they come up to the surface and first manifest in the mind as an obsessive defilement, and if it's strong enough, then it's acted out as a physical action or uh, some words. Then they become transgressive defilements. And so, to become free from all these defilements, in order to become fully liberated, we must practice, we must follow a path. And the Buddha proposed the Noble Eightfold Path. And these eight factors uh, are divided into three groups. And one of these groups is called the Sila group, the virtue group. Another one is called the concentration group, and the third group is the wisdom group. And so the most fundamental aspect of these eight factors of this path is our virtue, our Sila. 
and this begins with observing the ethical guidelines. And so in this way, following the ethical guidelines or the precepts can be understood as the basic protection on the way to final liberation, the final liberation from all the defilements. So in the case of keeping the precepts, it's very obvious that protecting ourselves, we protect others as well. So when we do not harm others, then we offer them fearlessness. So others don't need to be afraid that we kill them or that we harm them. We also offer trust. Others don't need to worry that their belongings or their property will be stolen or taken away. We also offer harmony. Others don't need to mistrust their partners of having an affair. Then we also offer honesty and truthfulness. So others don't need to feel insecure whether or not we say what is true. And we also offer clarity. Then others don't need to fear unpredictable or silly actions. So the observance of these ethical guidelines is motivated by two mental states and they are known as the guardians of the world. In Pali they are called Hiri and Otapa. Hiri is a sense of shame over a moral transgression and Otapa is the moral fear of the results of wrongdoing. And the Buddha called these two states the bright guardians of the world. As long as these two qualities can be found in people's hearts, then the moral standards of people uh, remain intact. However, if the influence of these bright guardians of the world wanes, becomes weaker, then the human world uh, can fall into unabashed promiscuity and violence. And we know history books and newspapers are full of such acts. Rape and murder, incest, suicide bombers, the 9-11 event or the gas chambers in Nazi Germany and so on. And then it is said that the human world is not much different from the animal uh, world. So when we cultivate these qualities of Hiri 
and otapa of moral shame and fear of wrongdoing, we can speed up our progress along the path to liberation. And on top of that, we also contribute to the harmony uh, in the world. Contribute to the harmony and we offer our share um, towards the protection of the world. Because we know that all forms of life are interconnected. And so based on this recognition, we should make Hiri and Otapa the guardians of our own mind. And by doing so, we become guardians of the world. By protecting ourselves, we protect others. By protecting others, we protect ourselves. To protect, to cultivate Hiri and Otapa, we need some self-restraint. Without a healthy degree of self-restraint, Hiri and Otapa cannot exist. Because if we give in to each and every impulse or desire or dislike, we will surely engage in actions that are not in accordance with the ethical guidelines. So to keep the precepts pure, we need mindfulness and wise attention to restrain ourselves when it's necessary. In connection with the precepts, we have another activity that can function as a protective power. This is the act of going for refuge. So when a person goes for refuge, and in the context of the Buddha's teaching, it means to go for refuge to the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, this going for refuge, then there is a commitment to accept the Triple Gem as a guide as a guiding ideal and then to bring one's actions in harmony with these ideals the person takes up the ethical guidelines so given the importance of going for refuge the question arises what need is there for a refuge. A refuge is usually considered what it can be a person or a place or a thing that gives protection, that gives protection from harm and danger. And in the commentaries, talking about refuge, Another word uh, is also mentioned, saying that it also has this meaning, and it's the word to crush. 
So explaining that when people have gone for refuge, then by that very going for refuge, it crushes, dispels, removes and stops the fear. So the protective power of going for refuge in the Triple Gem, this is something that has to be experienced by oneself. It's very difficult to explain it on a theoretical level. And so I want to use the story of a Western monk who was attacked by robbers on his pilgrimage in India. So this Western monk, he was accompanied by a layman. And they did this pilgrimage to the holy sites of the Buddha in India by foot. So they walked uh, all the distances. And one day they were walking through the forested countryside between Nalanda and Rajgir. And they were told by other people that it was quite dangerous there, that they should be careful. But two of them thought, oh well, we are on a pilgrimage, you know, nothing will happen to us. So then when they were there in the middle of this forest, um, a group of men appeared. They had been cutting trees in the forest. So all of these men, they had axes and staves of wood. It was a very lonely area, and this group of men immediately surrounded the monk and the layman. And they wanted to take all their things, all their belongings. And so the layman, who was with the monk, trying to protect the monk, he started to fight with this man. But he got knocked around quite a bit, and so finally he ran off, and a couple of robbers running uh, behind the layman. So then the monk was left alone with four of these men, four of these robbers. And they made it very obvious that they were going to kill him. Because the monk spoke a little bit of Hindi, so he was able to understand what they were saying. And on top of that, the head man, robber, was brandishing an axe over his head. And so the situation was pretty unambiguous. And then suddenly a thought flashed up in the monk's mind. It was the thought, when you go to, the, when you go to practice in the place of the Buddha, do not find fault with anyone for any reason. And this was the advice given to him by a Buddhist master before he left for this pilgrimage. And so then the monk realized, if this is what is happening, I cannot escape. I'm not going to fight these people. And even if I did, they would win anyway. So I will just give myself to them. And so then the monk, 
He bowed his head, put his hands in Anjali, and he started chanting. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambodhasa Namo tassa and so on, he chanted. So he stood there calmly, chanting, waiting for the axe to fall. But then nothing happened. And so he looked up and saw that the man holding the axe over his head could not bring it down. And then the monk got a bit cheeky and he went like this. drawing a line with his finger over his head. But again, the bandit, the man, could not bring him, could not bring uh, himself to harm the monk. So then as it turned out, the robbers took all of their things and the monk was left with his lower rope and his sandals. Everything else went. But the monk was still alive, and the layman as well. So in this way, the taking refuge was a protection for this monk. Another way that the practice of the Dhamma can function as protection is the practice of the four protective meditations. As I have already uh, talked about these four protective meditations, or tomorrow I'm going to talk about the last one, so I will just briefly mention these four protective meditations. As you have seen, they are a set of meditations or reflections that can act as a protection when properly developed. Our spiritual practice is often compared to a long journey. And so in the same way as we set out well prepared for a journey to a distant place, so a good equipment for our spiritual journey is very important. For a long journey, for an expedition, we take a map, a compass, we take provisions of food and maybe some weapons to protect ourselves. And so for our spiritual journey we need the four protective meditations. They give us the direction, they provide us with food and refreshment, and they protect us from danger and harm. As you know, these four protective meditations are, the first one is called Buddhanusati, that's the reflection on the attributes of the Buddha. The second one is Metta Bhavana, 
the cultivation of loving-kindness. The third one is the Asuba Bhavana, the reflection on the non-beauty of the body. And the fourth one is Maranasati, the reflection on death. So the first of these four protective meditations, the reflection on the Buddha's attributes, this helps to increase our confidence and it strengthens our faith that liberation, liberation from all the defilements, is actually possible. It's possible for all living beings. It's possible for us. The Buddha as another human being with a well-developed mind showed that the liberation of the mind, of the heart, from these defilements is possible. He exemplified that it is possible to, be, to become fully awake, to awaken to the true nature of things. And so we too have this potential to fully awake. Then metta meditation or cultivating loving kindness, this fosters a feeling of benevolence and loving kindness towards all living beings. And this practice can help uh, remove the fires of hate, anger, ill will, or aversion. As I said this afternoon, metta is the antidote to all forms of dosa. And a heart and mind that radiates loving kindness knows no barriers between close or distant persons. It does no longer make any differentiation between so-called loved people and disliked people. All the dividing barriers are lifted and loving-kindness radiates in all directions for all living beings, boundless, limitless. And so with that we feel a strong connection with all living beings acknowledging that they too want peace and happiness and knowing that they too want to be free from all kinds of suffering. The third of these protective meditations, the reflection on the non-beauty of the body, this can reduce our attachment to the body and it can lead to a more realistic understanding of the true nature of the body. And so this reflection can be done with the reflection on the 32 parts of the body. If one can see the body as a skeleton wrapped up with flesh and skin and with containers holding urine and feces, and 
blood and pus and mucus floating around, then one is less inclined to identify oneself with one's body or to cling to one's body or to the body of somebody else. So the purpose of this reflection is to increase the understanding of the true nature of our body. And it's not to arouse a sense of disgust or ill will towards our body or the body of others. But seeing the body in the right light, this leads to a firmness and um, unperturbedness of the mind, <clears throat> manifesting in non-attachment to the body. Then the last of these four protective meditations is the reflection on death. And this makes us realize more clearly the nature of impermanence, the nature that our life is impermanent. We are all mortal. One day we will die and everybody else will die. So the only certainty in our life is that we will die. But when? We don't know. How will we die? We don't know. Where will we die? We don't know. So we should prepare ourselves for this inevitable fact now. Now, as long as we are still relatively healthy and well. So this reflection on death leads to a feeling of spiritual urgency, to a sense that we have to do the important things now, before it's too late. So all the qualities developed through these four protective meditations are of great importance on our spiritual journey. Without them, it's very difficult to progress on the way. And so, in our day-to-day -day practice at home, we could spend two minutes for each of these four reflections, like in the morning or at the beginning of our formal meditation practice. So then, when we do each of these reflections for about two minutes, then it's like packing our spiritual day pack. So we pack it with confidence, with loving kindness, with an antidote for clinging, and with a sense of urgency. And so bearing in mind these qualities, they will protect us throughout the day whenever we face difficulties. Now another area or aspect that can bestow protection 
are the so-called paritas. These are the protective suttas, protective discourses. There is a number of discourses that are known as the discourses for protection. And in Asian Buddhist countries, these protective suttas are chanted almost daily in monasteries and in the homes of lay people. And in Burma, for example, there are 11 protective suttas and each day of the week is assigned one or two of these protective discourses. In Burma, Sunday is the day of the Mangala Sutta. Monday is the day of the Ratana Sutta. Tuesday is the day of the Metta Sutta and the Kanda Sutta, and so on. So then, if not all of these paritas are chanted, then the nuns, the monks, or the lay people would at least chant that one or two protective suttas assigned for that particular day. And so the protection is obtained by either reciting these paritas or by listening to the paritas. But for the paritas to manifest their protective power, the recitation or the listening must be done with understanding and confidence, it must be done with intelligence and devotion. For example, the Buddha himself had a parita recited when he was sick. Like if somebody is sick, then it's the Bojanga Sutta, uh, which is usually recited. The Bojangas are the seven factors of awakening. Or the Buddha recited the Bojanga Sutta to the Venerable Moggallana or the Venerable Kasapa when they were sick. So by listening carefully and attentively to the Sutta, then the Buddha, as well as Venerables Moggallana and Kasapa, they recovered from their illness. So several factors contribute to the efficacy of the recitation of these paritas. Chanting these protective suttas is a form of satcha kirya, which means an asseveration of truth. So the protection results by the power of such an asseveration. This means to establish oneself in the power of truth. At the end of the recitation of the Parita, the reciters bless the listeners with the words which means by the power of the truth of these words May you ever be well. 
So whatever the Buddha said, whatever he taught throughout his life was done on the basis of loving kindness and compassion. So whenever his words are repeated and recited, it should, it should be done with the same pure motivation, the same pure motivation to benefit living beings. And if it's done with this pure motivation, then the words are imbued with a powerful purity, which in turn can develop into a powerful protection for an attentive and devoted listener. Another fact that adds to the protective force is the actual sound from the chanting. So the sound of the chant should be soothing, and so it's soothing to the nerves and it induces peace and a calm mind. A soothing sound also brings harmony to the physical system. So by listening to a parita or chanting a parita oneself with the proper attitude, one's mind is filled with wholesome mental states and thereby abandoning unwholesome negative states or when the mind is filled with wholesome mental states so that prevents the arising of other unwholesome mental states. And wholesome beneficial mental states, they conduce to well-being, to good health, to prosperity, happiness and liberation. So after all I have said in regard to the protective power of the Dhamma, it should have become clear that this power of protection cannot be obtained by remaining inactive. It's not by sitting in the soft chair and looking out of the window that this protective power falls into our lap as a gift of heaven. Rather, the protective power of the Dhamma can be experienced by wholeheartedly applying the Dhamma, the teaching of the Buddha, by wholeheartedly applying it in our life. And as we have seen, there are several possibilities to do so, to apply these teachings in our life by being mindful or by taking refuge or by being virtuous, keeping the precepts or by cultivating the bright guardians of the world, Hiri and Otapa or by practicing the four protective meditations or by means of the paritas, chanting them themselves or listening to the paritas. So in any case, 
our wholehearted engagement is crucial to experience the protective power of the Dhamma. To make a last comment, let's go back to the phrase that I mentioned at the beginning of this talk. Protecting oneself, one protects others. Protecting others, one protects oneself. So the protection of oneself and the protection of others, that corresponds to the great twin virtues of Buddhism. These are the virtues of wisdom and compassion. And to express it quite simply and generally, the protection of oneself relates to wisdom and understanding and the protection of others relates to compassion and loving-kindness. So that's all for today. Let's sit quietly for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.